thank you, Ashley and Chris, and leading us in some very thoughtful worship this morning. We are in a series of messages on the family called Endangered Species, and there are some aspects of family life that are endangered in our generation. We're focusing on those today, prime parents. We talk about prime cuts of meat, talk about prime rib, we talk about prime seats at a ball game, but today we're talking about prime parents being the best parent you can be. It is the most significant and the most vital assignment you can undertake in this life. Now, you become a parent when you are responsible for the miracle of conceiving a human life, conceiving an eternal soul, or you become a parent when you take responsibility for a human life, um, an eternal soul that has been conceived. But either way, whether in the delivery room or in the adoption process, the lifelong blessing and the lifelong challenge of being a parent has begun. Well, let's take a step back here for a moment right at the beginning and just to be rational if we can. Let me ask you something. Would you seriously consider taking a job with a position description that read something like this? Sign up and commit today to a 25-year contract with possible extensions requiring 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, year in and year out with the personal responsibility for the physical, emotional, social, intellectual, and spiritual development of another human being. The first year. You will have no more than four consecutive hours of sleep each night. You will be responsible for feeding this person on demand and changing their diapers, and you will go unthanked and unappreciated for attending to their hygienic needs. You will have to deal with violent mood swings, and you will be basically homebound. You will need to purchase a number of high-dollar plastic furnishings at your own expense that will sub subsequently become garbage or peddled for pennies on the dollar at a garage sale. This person will be unable to walk or talk unless you take several months to teach them. This person will also require toilet training and sponge baths. Plan on listening to hours and hours of mindless gibberish as you play the game Candyland until you scream. Plan on giving long back rubs and reading and singing this person to sleep nightly. You'll be required to stay up late completing science projects, giving him or her spelling words, and helping with math that you cannot possibly understand. You'll eventually turn over the family car keys to this person who's never driven a car before. 
You'll also have to pay the deductible for their fender bender and the elevated insurance premiums that go with it. Constant vigilance will be needed to monitor this person's friends and activities as well as providing protection from the dangers of the many vices that are prevalent in the world. Be prepared to shell out thousands of dollars for higher education and for wedding-related expenses. Again, only occasionally will you be appreciated, often misunderstood, sometimes even resented. You will observe the rolling of the eyes, the stomping of the feet the shaking of the head, you will become familiar with the silent treatment. Finally, there is no salary, and there are no benefits for this position. It is strictly voluntary. There are few perks and absolutely no time off. <laughs> you going to answer that ad? It goes without saying. Only aspiring parents need apply. Well, back to my introductory idea, being a parent is the most important responsibility anyone will ever undertake. And bear in mind, even if you are not a parent and you never plan on being a parent, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to be a paternal influence on children, on young people. So this message is for everyone in this assembly today because you're either a parent or you are going to be a parent in time or you are a Christian who should care about the younger generation. So let's get started. Author Laura Schlesinger says that in today's American society the role of parents has been stripped down to a bare minimum. The emphasis is on everything else, school, friends, TV, the media. These are the life-shaping factors in a child's personal growth and development. Today, children are expected, even encouraged, to look outside the home, to look away from their parents for direction in life. And more radical groups are intentionally trying to alienate our children from the traditional family, from the biblical model of the family, but in fact, it is the Creator's plan that parents be the primary teachers, that parents be the primary influencers of their kids. And all the research that I see says that parents have the clout, parents have the inside track when it comes to shaping the character and the destiny of their children in this life and in the life to come. But if we're going to succeed, we cannot be passive, my friends. We have to be passionate about excellence in our parenting. Now before we jump into the text of Scripture today, I want to say a word to parents who may have prodigal children. My aim today is not to stir up feelings of guilt or to make you feel like a failure as a mom or dad nor is it my intention to be trite and to oversimplify what I consider to be one of the most complex and challenging tasks on earth. I know that some of you are sensitive today because you're not sure where your children are spiritually. Please do not feel defeated. If your child has demonstrated that he's got a will of his own, 
or if she has made choices that do not reflect your values, just realize this one fact. Your heavenly Father knows what it's like to be a perfect parent and still have rebellious, unsaved children. But He doesn't give up. He keeps on patiently extending His love and grace. So don't you lose hope. You keep praying. You keep fighting for your family. Never give up. Now that being said, I want to take you to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 in your pew Bible. It's the fifth book in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It'll be projected here on the screens. And if you actually flip over your worship bulletin this morning, it's right there. Our text today, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, is called the Shema. The Shema in Hebrew translated means hear, exclamation point, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. From these verses, I've got a simple message to share with you today from this ancient passage, yet very relevant passage, but today no big breakthrough insights, no profound nuances from the text. Rather, the purpose of this message is to stimulate your conscience and to fortify your will as we focus on two fundamental truths, and I want to give them to you up front. The first one is this, as parents, we are to teach our children with our words and with our example. That's it. That's it. As parents, our primary task is to teach our children, and we do that with our words. We do that by our example, and it takes both. But my observation has been that many parents have a tendency to limit themselves to only one of those two methods either words or behavior, but not both. Consequently, parents will sometimes verbally impose their beliefs, their standards on their kids, but they aren't consistent in their own actions. Or the opposite, parents will live a very God-honoring life, but they're not strategic about communicating with their kids. As prime parents, we're called to do both, to teach our children about God through our words and by our lives. First, through our words. Look at verses 6 and 7 right there in the Shema. Impress them, that is, these commandments that I give you today. Impress them on your children. Talk about them. So the words impress them and talk about them. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. 
Now, these commands were given to the Israelites by Moses as they're about to enter the promised land. They'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. By now, the disbelieving generation had passed away. So Moses is speaking to their children. He's speaking to their grandchildren. And there's a sense of urgency in Moses' voice. He knows that he's soon going to pass the baton of leadership to Joshua. And his first concern is for the spiritual welfare of the people as they they prepare for some big changes as they cross over the Jordan River to possess the promised land. And Moses knew that their spiritual and physical well-being was dependent on their obedience to God. That has not changed. The physical and spiritual well-being of our children is dependent on obedience to God. The land of Canaan was inhabited by people who worshipped idols, and they were immoral to the extent that some of them actually burned their children in fire. Child sacrifices was a part of their religious expression as they worshipped non-existent deities. That's why in a few verses after this, verse 13 in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says this, Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. Now, when we read these words, it should cause us to have a similar kind of urgency as we seek to raise our children and mentor the younger generation. Now, we're not on a journey to a physical promised land, but we are strangers in a world that is hostile toward God and His Word. And in our day, there are indeed other gods. And like the Israelites, we can be tempted to pursue these false gods. And God does not lack competition today as He tries to find first place in our hearts. Idolatry is not limited to 4,000 years ago. Idolatry is not limited to images of wood and stone. An idol is anything, anything that diverts your attention, that moves your head, that moves your heart away from devotion to God. A book that several of you are reading right now called Gods at War provides some questions that may reveal whether we are in danger of idolatry or we're in danger of teaching our children to worship idols. Look at this. What do you talk about most? Sports, money, investments, cars, clothes, redecorating. What do your children hear in your conversation routinely? What do they hear you talk about? Or what do you daydream about most? What What's reflected in your conversation about what you look forward to in the days ahead? What do your children see you getting excited about? What are you saving up to buy? What does your checkbook reveal? What does your credit card record reveal? Or this one, what do you complain about most? It'll be reflected in your conversation. So so what are you most worried about? What keeps you up at night? What are your anxious thoughts? As those come out in your conversation, your kids are picking up things. What angers you most? What ticks you off? What irritates you? What trips your trigger? As that is reflected in your speech, in your conversation, It gives messages about what's most important to you or this. What or whom do you admire most? You see, our children 
our children today can fall prey to idolatry, and there are still idols that can supplant God in our children's lives, so we're just like ancient Israel. We've got to protect our children from idolatry. And how do we do it? Well, here's how we do it. As parents, we're commanded to talk about God to our children. And we're told to do it at four very specific times. Take a look. Number one, when you sit at home. Now, I, I would say that this probably equates to mealtime for most of us, although many families don't eat together anymore. Meal planning and serving takes too much time. It's too much trouble. It's a lot easier to go out for fast food or just eat on the run or maybe graze at home. You can graze by just putting the food out on the counter and everyone just stands around and comes and goes or picks up their food and sits in front of the television. Time Magazine had an article back in June of 2006 called The Magic of the Family Meal. It was written by an anthropologist, Robin Fox, a teacher at Rutgers University. She does not write as a Christian, but look at what she says. There's something about a shared meal. Not some holiday blowout, not once in a while, but regularly that anchors a family. A family dinner engraves our souls in a mysterious way. A meal together is about civilizing our children. So do you have such a time when you sit at home? It's always fun for us to visit our adult children at mealtimes and kind of see what they do and pick up on what they do. Our younger daughter and her husband, our three granddaughters, often play a little game at dinner time called best and worst. And best and worst is just simply going around the table and everybody sharing with the rest of the group What's the best thing that happened to me today? <laughs> What's the worst thing that happened to me today? Then we go to our older daughter's house, and they sit with their four children around the table, and they have a little song, high-low, high-low, how did your day go? And then you put in a name. And whoever's name is called, they've got to share what their high was and what their low was. I don't know what kind of a thing you might do to trigger conversation at your dinner table and be able to open up to one another and relate God to that. But that's what Moses is talking about when he says, talk about them, God's truths. Talk about them when you sit at home. And then secondly, when you walk along the road. Now, they walked, we drive. So we're talking here about drive time. I loved it when on Mother's Day, some of you were here, we gave away key rings to the mothers on Mother's Day that had little cardboard tags with discussion questions to ask the kids as you carpool or when you are involved in drive time with your children. I thought it was absolutely a great idea. And it reminded me of our kids when we would take a long trip. I would make sure I had a bag of Skittles or a bag of M&Ms. And I would ask the kids Bible questions in the back, and if they got one right, they got a Skittle. 
They got an M&M. It was great fun, made the time pass, gave us many laughs, and kept the kids from killing each other, probably. <laughs> then the third time we talk about God to our children is when they lie down at night, bedtime. It's a tender time. When kids naturally open up, but it cannot be experienced if parents are engrossed in TV or if they're consumed with their iPhone and they will not be interrupted. Don't cheat yourself like that. Enjoy bedtime. Don't rush it. Read Bible stories or read a good book. I remember reading the book Life on the Edge by Dr. James Dobson with our daughters when they were in their junior and senior year in high school. We'd read three to four pages a night, and it took us to places in our conversation that I'm convinced we would not have gone. You can relate on a superficial level, or you can relate at a much deeper and a much more satisfying level. And I remember reading the book Bruchko, a missionary biography with our son. And I remember how impressed he was with the story of Bruchko, a 19-year-old young man who decided he was going to do something about drugs in the United States, and he decided the best way to address it was to go to Central America and plant churches and do evangelism as a 19-year-old kid. And I remember how impressed our son was with Bruchko. Well, there's a fourth time when we talk to our children about God, and that's when you get up in the morning time. When you lie down and when you get up in the morning. It meant a lot to us to get this note from one of our adult children a few years back. I wrote down the exact words. Mom and Dad, it was our nightly prayers as little kids and the morning devotions around the breakfast table as teenagers that helped us build on the right foundation. Thank you for teaching us to love God's Word. I remember those mornings, 7.30 in the morning. We had the one-minute Bible. Now, the one-minute Bible gets a lot of bad press. There are some people who put it down. They say, well, the one-minute Bible, you only got a minute for the Bible? Listen, when it's 7.30 in the morning and school is coming up and you've got homework to finish up, you've got people to get ready, breakfast to eat, pulling things together. The one-minute Bible comes in handy. I'm telling you, though, that one minute to read God's Word, to give them just a couple or three sentences of application, and to have a prayer together around the breakfast table. Three to four minutes, but it set our kids up for the rest of the day. My friends, listen. Christian education and Bible teaching is not primarily the job of the local church. We're involved. Yes, we are. But the primary place for Christian education, the primary place for Bible teaching is the home, and the very best teachers are mom and dad. And one day a week at church, or a few days a year, for vacation Bible school at church, it's just simply not enough. Eternal truths are most effectively learned day after day in the loving environment of a God-fearing home. It's impressed there. It's talked about there. 
And then we supplement it here. We complement it here with our classes and our discipleship groups and our youth groups and our church camps and our light company and our vacation Bible school. But parents are prime. Well, what about the other half of the equation? We teach our children through our words, yes, but we also teach them through our lives. Look at the text, verses 8 and 9. Tie them, that is the commandments. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. These are action words. Tie them, bind them, write them. The Israelites made sure that there were visual reminders about God everywhere. Handwritten scriptures in little boxes called phylacteries were attached to their hands and their foreheads. God's Word was literally engraved on their door frames and gates. The people of God wanted their children not only to hear but also to see to see the evidence of God every time they turned around. And the principle here is whatever we need to do to daily remind our children of the existence of the Lord, the reality of the Lord, we should do it. Here's a picture that hung in Kyle's room as he was a boy growing up. It hung on the wall in his room. He's 37 years old now. I could take you to his study today and this picture is right there on his desk. I think this picture was formative as a reminder to him as he grew up that he has a hand of Jesus on his shoulder pointing him through the storms of life. Here's another one. This is a picture of Jesus standing in the fields that are white and to harvest in kind of a gesture of invitation to join him there. And I think, I think this image in our home motivated our kids to be workers with the Lord of the harvest. Parents, let's have our homes so full of the Word of God that our children cannot help but see it. They cannot help but read it. They cannot help but hear it. And I think Christian radio is a great advantage here. We are blessed with two great Christian radio stations in this town. K-Love is 95.3 FM. It's the music that we sing in our worship here at Crossroads on the weekend. Bottom line is this. You can be creative and determined to make Father God real to your kids. But it's not just the tangible evidences of the faith. It's also the day-to-day -day modeling of faith that's done by the parents. If you miss everything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Your kids may not always do what you say, but they will almost always do what they see. I'll never forget the commercial where there's a series of images in which a son is imitating his father's actions. So the father's washing the car, the son picks up the sponge and starts to help. The father's painting a fence, so the son grabs a paintbrush and dips it in the paint can. Then the father sat down, lit up a cigarette, 
So the son reaches for the package. He wants to be just like dad. Our kids will emulate our actions because they want to be like their parents. It's innate. It's inborn. It's a part of the family structure. It is ordained by God. The children tend to imitate their parents and that parents take their mentoring responsibilities seriously. Nothing is more confusing to a child than to hear a parent say one thing and then do another. But they quickly figure it out. And then they start to live that way themselves. And I want to say today, Mom, if you are living with someone right now to whom you are not married, your actions are speaking more loudly than your words. You are setting the table for your sons and daughters to be immoral. And there are consequences for living that kind of life. Dad, if you're off to the golf course as the family is loading up to go to church, do not expect your sons and daughters to take worship and fellowship with other believers seriously. Because a parent's attitudes and a parent's temperament and a parent's vocabulary and a parent's actions and reactions, those become a child's learned behavior. My parents never talked to me about giving back to God. But I observed my parents sitting at the kitchen counter writing a church check after breakfast every Sunday morning. That's how I learned. Gospel musician Hilding Halverson tells about overhearing a conversation between his son and a couple of his buddies. As the boys were playing in the backyard, one of the boys boasted, my dad knows the mayor of this town. And another boy boasted, that's nothing. My dad knows the governor of our state. And then his son said, that's nothing. My dad knows God. <laughs> Halverson overheard that. He said he had to go and find a quiet place and get on his knees. And he prayed, God, I want my boy to always say, my dad knows God. Some years ago, a devoted dad had a son who became seriously ill. After extensive testing, the father was told the shocking news that he was terminally ill. And his boy, his boy was a Christian, so the father knew that death would be the gateway to life for his young son. But he wondered how in the world he was going to tell him that unless there was a miracle that he was not going to get well. So he prayed before that hard conversation and then went to his son's hospital bedside and he gently told him that the doctors could only promise him a few more days to live. Are you ready to meet Jesus, son? Asked his father. Blinking away tears, the little boy said bravely, No, not if he's like you, Dad. Well, that's it, friends. As parents, we've got to decide whether we're going to settle for passivity or not, whether we're going to settle for mediocrity or not. 
Are we going to be prime parents? Are we going to be the best that we can be? Are we going to be the best that the Holy Spirit can make us as we yield to His power and presence in our lives? Moms and dads, listen, the home is the number one place for our children to come to know the Lord and to grow in the Lord. This is where our children need to hear the truth in a world of lies. It's where our children need to see the truth lived out. And the greatest legacy, the greatest inheritance you can give your kids is your spoken testimony and your personal example of commitment to Jesus Christ. A week ago, last Friday, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, right over there in that pool, I baptized um, one of our wonderful new families, wonderful new couples in church, Corbett and Jenny White. Very precious family. Three children, one little lap baby, Mother, mother-in-law came along to witness the baptisms, and she was holding the little baby, but the other two kids, ages, I'd say six and four, maybe five and three, stood right up there on that platform, and they watched while I led that mother and dad down into the baptistry, took their confession of faith, and these children... Their eyes were like this. They were taking it all in. Their little minds, their impressionable little minds were taking a picture as they heard their mother and father confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord as they observed their mother and dad being buried with Him in baptism and raised to walk in a new life. They'll never forget it. And my guess is, flash ahead a few years, and they'll have the same experience. Is this where it needs to begin for you today as a mom or dad? In this time of decision, we'll be here at the front to meet you and talk with you about a decision to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, to get your roots down in church life at Crossroads. We'll be here to meet you as we stand and worship together.